Hey there, welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. This is your host, Damien Blinkinsop. Today we're revisiting the microbiome. We first looked at the basics with Ubiome, Jessica Richmond, back in episode nine. Uh, today we're going to dig further into what has been shown to really affect the gut microbiome today. Now, the microbiome that we're still kind of grappling with trying to understand it, we're at early stages of that, is turning out to be a really important lever for resolving all manner of health conditions. And importantly, it's a big piece in our resilience. So our ability to overcome health and other challenges in our life, we'll find like the biome can be a really important factor in its resilience. You have a strong biome, a solid, good balance of good bacteria and so on, you can be very resilient. If the opposite is true, you tend to be not resilient. And that's really not something that helps us perform better and be better in life. So a couple of anecdotes from my world and my experiences. Uh, first of all, most of my friends from the digital nomad crowd, that's people who just kind of travel the world, uh, we're lifestyle entrepreneurs, we have internet businesses. And you know, we've been living abroad for a long, long time. Now, it's interesting that a lot of these, a lot of these, these friends in this community have some type of gut issue or have had and they had to get it treated. And I think this comes down to traveling to third world countries. A lot of us have done this, obviously, and we've lived in countries like Thailand, China, Latin America, and so on. And we picked up parasites, I think. Uh, we've taken antibiotics typically because we've come across infections where we've had to get these resolver of antibiotics in these countries to resolve sickness. And we've suffered some kind of immune or digestive issues since. So that's really a trend I've seen in a lot of my friends from the digital nomad crowd. Personally, also a lot of my problems that started over eight years ago while living in China, I think really started with parasite acquisition while I was in China. And then having to take several rounds of antibiotics while I was there and it, my health started to get a bit worse, my chronic health issues. So from my perspective, the gut's been really important. I've made a lot of progress over the last year. I'm still working on it with my functional medicine doctor. So I've been doing several things and, and some of this includes what I call the biome blitz, which is basically doing a lot of different things to try and shift the biome. And my biome has completely shifted from something completely abnormal. So in my U biome test results, which is what I've been using, I had a biome which looked nothing like any other communities like the paleo, even the people who've been taking antibiotics or anything else. I had a very, very kind of extreme balance in my biome. So it's been over a year and a half since my first test. And now my U-biome results look very similar to a paleo gut. So they look more like uh, one of those communities and it's very similar to my, to my actual diet. I continue to work on this though. There's a lot, I think there's still a fair way to go. And I'll publish results at some point when I get to a stage it's worthwhile reporting and I have enough evidence and so on to that progress. In this interview, we look at how changes or differences in our microbiome modulate us. So they change us. They change how we're living, how we're able to live for our health, our behavior, and even stranger things like how many mosquito bites we get and how toxic drugs can be us or not. We'll also look at the specific impacts of things like antibiotics cesarean sections at birth, and tools like fecal transplants, so that's implanting stool inside us to change our biome, and changes in our diet. We are fortunate to have a real thought leader working very hard in this space as today's guest. He heads up a lot of the investigative research into it, and he's already worked on over 300 published research studies, most of them in this area. Rob Knight, PhD, is professor at University of California, San Diego. He is the founder of the Knight Lab, a lab that uses state-of-the-art computation and bioinformatics to understand the microbiome and what affects it. He's also co-founder of the American Gut Project with Jeff Leach. American Gut Project and Ubiome are the two large citizen science microbiome projects, so they're collecting all of this data from people like us on the biomes to understand it better. We'll learn more about the American Gut Project and how it compares to Ubiome in this episode. Rob has a really popular TED Talk named How Our Microbes Make Us Who We Are. And he's also the author of the book, Follow Your Gut, The Enormous Impact of Tiny Microbes. Both of these are good places to learn more about the microbiome. Really good. So I encourage you to go check those out. Um, of course, that will be in the show notes as usual on thequantifiedbody.net. If you want to get all of the show notes in your email inbox every time we come out with an episode, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter. Pop your email in there and you'll get it automatically. Without further ado, let's get into this interview. The Quantified Body. 
New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, sure. Thanks, Damien. Thanks for your interest in this topic. It's great. So we already looked at the microbiome, but I wanted to know, why is it that you got interested in this specific area? What is it that first caught your interest or you first got involved in this area? Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a very indirect pathway for my graduate work at Princeton. I've been studying the evolution of the genetic code, and a large part of that was looking at RNA molecules that bound to particular molecules that are useful in metabolism. So from there, I went to the University of Colorado working on RNA sequence space and trying to figure out how many random RNA sequences you, look, uh, you need to look at before you find one that does something interesting. So there were a lot of one particular kind of sequence, the ribosomal RNA molecule in the database. I really wondered uh, why were there so many of that particular sequence that had been studied. And so I started talking to Norm Pace, who was one of the, one of the other faculty members at Boulder. And I realized that they were using the ribosomal RNA, not as an object of study in and of itself, but as a tool to understand the relationships between different organisms and to read them out in the communities that they were looking at, everything from rocks to shower curtains to caves. And so it really just going from basic studies of RNA to understanding that you could use a particular kind of RNA as a tool to find out something about microbes. And then from there, realizing that the microbial communities themselves could be used as a tool to find out about different environmental conditions, including the conditions within our own bodies. Great, great, thank you. For some of the people at home, they might not understand what RNA is in reference to DNA and how that works. Could you give a quick overview of what the mechanism for RNA is and, and what role it plays in our bodies and the other things you've been talking about? Sure, absolutely. So I think everyone's familiar with the idea that uh, DNA is the genetic material we use that passes down from one generation to the next. So uh, proteins are most of the catalysts that do reactions in our bodies, most of the structural elements. So what happens is that the DNA gets transcribed into RNA, you know, ribonucleic acid, which is a, a chemically relatively similar to DNA, and then the RNA gets translated uh, into proteins. But there are some kinds of RNA that don't get translated and have a function in and of themselves. One really important kind of RNA is the ribosomal RNA that actually makes up the factory in the cell, uh, the ribosome, that makes the proteins. And so because it plays such an important role in life, you can detect similarities in it even between very distantly related organisms, so similarities even between us and bacteria. And so you can use that molecule to uh, reconstruct an evolutionary tree that relates all of those organisms together based on the similarities and differences in the sequence. Great. So then you, from those studies, you started working to look at the bacteria because you saw that they had a, a pretty important role and they, there was a lot of similarities between the things you were studying on the human level and in the animal level. Could you tell, tell us a little bit about what it was that kind of pushed you to look more at the microbiome? Oh, yeah, sure. Originally, the tools that I was developing together with uh, Kathy Lezapone, then a very talented graduate student in my lab, but now a faculty member at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver. Initially, we were just looking at tools to compare microbial communities out there in the environment. So looking at the effects of things like salinity and pH, other chemical factors to, as, as drivers for how microbes are different in different places, like uh, different samples of soil or seawater or other communities like that. And so uh, at the time, we had thought that maybe the microbes associated with, with the body wouldn't be that interesting because at the time, there was a fairly heavy bias towards the idea that most people probably have the same microbes because if you grow them on a Petri dish, you get more or less the same thing from everybody. But it turns out that there's a huge number of microbes in there, even in our own bodies, that we don't yet know how to culture. And as a result, when you look at them with these culture-independent methods where you're directly sequencing the DNA you know, that codes for these ribosomal RNA genes and figuring out what's in the communities directly, you see all this diversity in the human microbiome that uh, no one had suspected was there. So we started doing this in mice, actually, in collaboration with Dr. Jeffrey I. Gordon. He's a physician at uh, Washington University, a gastroenterologist who was really interested in uh, looking at links between microbes and obesity. So we started with mice, then moved up to humans, and then increasingly we've been interested in looking at uh, the microbiome, not as a static system, but as a dynamic system. So looking at how it changes over time, uh, both in health and in disease. 
Great, great. Thank you very much. And of course, you're a co-founder of a project which has been designed to explore the microbiome in, in America, of the population in America. What kind of latest update of American gut and what you've been doing there? Let me give you just a little backstory to that project. So before American Gut, we were involved in the Human Microbiome Project, which is this very large-scale NIH-funded initiative, $173 million, to characterize what do the microbes look like in healthy people. And was there a core microbiome? Is there a lot of variation person-to-person? How does it vary in different parts of the body? So during that process, and in part because of technology that was developed during the Human Microbiome Project, DNA sequencing and tools to analyze the DNA sequences made the whole process dramatically cheaper. So essentially we wondered, can we bring this technology to members of the general public using the tools that we and others had developed during the Human Microbiome Project to essentially allow anyone who was interested in finding out about their own microbiomes to, uh, to, to be able to do that at a reasonable cost. So Jeff Leach and I uh, launched as a collaboration between the Earth Microbiome Project and the Human Food Project, uh, this crowdsourced, crowdfunded initiative where basically it's donation supported and uh, people can find out directly about what's in their gut and um, how it compares to the gut microbes of other people around America or around the world, especially um, including the people who were uh, analyzed in the Human Microbiome Project and also including people in, uh, in Africa, in South America, um, and soon people in Asia to try to compare uh, what do microbes look like and how do they relate to health and disease. So unlike the Human Microbiome Project, where there were very rigorous exclusion criteria, so you could only participate if you were certified by a physician as being extremely healthy, in American Gut, we're interested in, in anyone essentially to see what kinds of microbiome configurations are out there in the wild when you give everybody the opportunity to participate. Great, great. That's a great backstory. What's the number of samples you've collected to date? You said it's, I mean, it's called American Gut, but it sounds like it's not just focused on America now that it's spread out and it's available to more widely internationally. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it's relatively expensive to participate internationally because the shipping regulations are fairly burdensome. So what we've been doing is we've been launching spin-offs in, in other countries. And so we started with Australian gut and with British gut, uh, essentially because it's a lot easier to translate all the, all the instructions from English into English <laughs> than it is to uh, tackle those translation issues. But yeah, so we're, we're hoping to expand to a lot of other countries. And at the moment, with, with the uh, transition from the University of Colorado to the University of California, we're essentially in a holding pattern at the moment, uh, waiting for ethics approval. But we're hoping to scale up the project dramatically and uh, greatly facilitate the ability for people all over the world to participate. Which approval did you say you're waiting for? Was it an academic program approval? or? Uh, institutional review board approval. So in order to ensure that the project is conducted ethically and that the results of the research are going to be meaningful, everything we do in American Gut has been approved by institutional review boards from the beginning. I, I moved from the University of Colorado to the University of California uh, right at the beginning of this year. What's happening right at the moment is we're waiting for the ethics approvals to be transferred from one institution to another, uh, which can take a little time. Right, right, get it, get it. How many samples have you collected to date for the project? We've released data from about uh, 4,500 samples. We've sent out about 9,000 kits. We have about another uh, 1,500 samples in hand that we're just waiting for that ethics approval to be able to move forward on sequencing. So for anyone who's listening, if you're wondering where your results are, (laughs) we'll be able to get them out pretty soon. We just need to make sure that everything is uh, completely compliant with all of the regulations that that apply to human subjects research in the United States, uh, just to make sure that everything is completely above board. Excellent. Excellent. So has there any analysis come out of it or insights yet that you've been able to do? Yeah, absolutely. So one, one thing that was exciting about it um, or already, so in the Human Microbiome Project, uh, we, the first papers which came out in Nature in 2012, we looked at about, so we looked at um, about 250 healthy subjects. So I think we, I think we reported data for 242 where, um, where there was information from all body sites. So you have about 250 people involved in that project versus American Gut, where you have thousands of people involved. So as a result, with a much larger population size, we had much more statistical power to look at subtle effects. And we also put on the questionnaire all sorts of things that were considered too crazy to ask in the HMP. But in the intervening, t- in, in the intervening time, we've discovered so much more about what the microbiome does, especially in a, in a range of different animal models, that it seemed a lot less crazy to ask those questions in 2012 than it did in 2008. As a result, we've been able to see associations between the microbiome and all kinds of things you might not 
might have expected. So you might have expected that how old you are affects the microbiome, which it does. But you might not have expected that, uh, for example, how much sleep you say you get at night uh, is, is also linked to the microbiome. And we see a statistically significant effect of that. Similarly, you might have expected that how much alcohol you drink affects the microbiome, but you might not have expected that we can also pick up a difference based on how much you exercise, or I should say uh, how much you say you exercise, because all this is self-reported data. But how much you say you exercise, and even whether you say you do it indoors or outdoors, has an effect. So uh, we're really picking up a lot of interesting associations. And what we're hoping to do in the next phase of the project is to take a bunch of these associations and turn them into something where we can uh, where we can start to get at causality. So what we'd love to know if we see an association with alcohol or an association with exercise or with sleep or with any of these other things is to actually encourage people to change what they're doing in, in those respects or you know more obvious things like diet or antibiotics, where uh, where the idea is that if you do if you take a sample before you have a change in any of those things and then you have a change and then you take another sample again after, uh, can we start figuring out uh, which of those changes are actually caused by those different uh, lifestyle things that you could be doing versus which are simply effects? Right, because a lot of when we're thinking about the microbiome and just to make sure I'm correct here, you're just looking at the gut, right? The microbiome of the gut. Well, actually with American gut, you can look at the microbiome. So most people are looking at their gut microbiome, but uh, it's also interesting to look at other body sites. And we have been sending out a, a number of batches of kits that, uh, that allow you to sample multiple sites simultaneously. So in other projects that we're doing, we've been looking at skin. So for example, we had a very interesting paper uh, that came out in PNES last week with Peter Dorostein doing very high-resolution maps of the, of the skin and then relating the microbes to the metabolites. And then there's also uh, there's also a lot of interest in the oral microbiome, uh, the, the oral microbiome, uh, the vaginal microbiome, and so on. So although the gut microbiome is where most attention has been focused, there is a lot of interest potentially in looking at other body sites and linking them not just to health effects of that site, but also to all over the body. So for example, the gut microbiome has been linked to asthma and to rheumatoid arthritis and to cardiovascular disease, all of which are taking place at sites outside the gut, but are nonetheless affected by the gut microbiome. And it's entirely possible that, for example, the oral microbiome or the skin microbiome might also be having systemic effects. We're only just beginning to understand whether it's through interactions with the immune system or whether it's through release of particular metabolites or other mechanisms. Maybe it's too early to say this, but have you seen anything that would indicate that the microbiomes are related to each other? In terms of like, if you have a different gut microbiome, it may lead, like it may influence or be influenced somehow by the fact that your nose or your skin biome is different also. Well, that, that's a very interesting and uh, controversial question. So actually, in the first Human Microbiome Project main papers, we show that there are statistically significant but relatively weak associations between the different body sites. And then later, that's been, um, that, that's been confirmed by other researchers using different statistical methods. At the moment, there's a lot of debate about how strong the associations are and what effects they have on health when you're looking at the overall configurations. There's certainly some individual organisms that are very interesting. So, for example, Dan Littman at NYU has done some very nice work linking Prevotellicopri uh, in the gut to rheumatoid arthritis. And so we'll probably see a number of other uh, associations like that where specific organisms at one site have a non-local effect. What happens with health at other sites in the body? Very, very interesting. I think the surprising thing for a lot of people out of what you just said is that there are a lot of lifestyle factors, not related to diet, because we normally think of the biome, especially the gut biome, being immediately related to our diet and what do we eat. But a lot of the things you mentioned, sleep, age, exercise, and you said exercise indoors or outdoors can be different as well. Was that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, this was very interesting, like these small changes in your lifestyle, nothing to do with diet can have a uh, significant impact on, on the gut also, which um, we haven't looked at. Sure, although I should, I should clarify that long-term diet has the largest effect that we've seen. Um, in the work with um, you know, Gary Wu and others at Penn uh, that came out in 2011 in, in science, what we saw there is that uh, long-term dietary patterns had a profound effect on the gut microbiome, especially changing the ratio of Prevotella to Bacteroides, two of the major taxa in the gut and uh, changing the overall configuration more than essentially anything else. So the only thing we've seen that gives you comparable changes 
so it's either antibiotics or acute infection with uh, with some kinds uh, some kinds of pathogens like C diff, for example, has a very large effect on your gut microbial community. So uh, so long term diet is is really very important. Short term diet, unless it's something really extreme, is uh, a lot less important than what we see in long term diet. This is maybe consistent with people's experiences of going on a diet for a short period, uh, losing some weight, but then going off the diet and then bouncing uh, bouncing back again. But in general, your microbiome is very resilient. This comes to the topic of variability of the microbiome over time. I did see one presentation of yours where you were showing the biome of a newborn baby, actually, as it was growing up. And you're showing the changes at that stage of his life, which were quite um, significant at that stage. But for adults who are fully developed, in our day-to-day, week-to-week lives, are microbiomes changing significantly or are they very, very stable? Both of those are true. So our microbiomes change statistically significantly one day to the next. And especially when we do things like travel or take antibiotics or if we have a chronic immunologically associated disease like, for example, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis or other, uh, other, other conditions where there's a lot of variability in whether, uh, whether you're in remission or whether you're having a relapse, there can be fairly large changes there, but typically small compared to the differences between different people. So we tend to be stable in terms of, especially if we're healthy and there's nothing particular going on, uh, we tend to be stable in the sense that we're more similar to ourselves day to day than we are to other people. But that doesn't mean that you can't detect the differences one day to the next. And so uh, a very interesting question at the moment is what is the significance of those day-to-day fluctuations? Might it actually be more important how much you vary than what your current state is right now? And that's one of the things that we're just starting to investigate at the moment. Yes, and in terms of how meaningful data would be to someone who's, who's collecting it for themselves, if they take one sample and they get one reading, is that meaningful to them? Or would you suggest they take one this week and one next week? How would you go about kind of making sure you have something representative? Right. Well, well having, having one sample is certainly a lot better than having uh, no samples in terms of getting some information about what's in your gut, right? Because uh, even having one sample is going to do a tremendous amount to place yourself on the microbial map relative to other people. The question about how frequently you should sample and how many samples you should take to get a baseline, uh, that's something that's actually a very, a very active research topic at the moment. And we have collaborations with a number of different investigators exploring that in different contexts. So, for example, one thing we'll be doing is some work supported by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America with uh, Hans Heffarth and Balfour Sator at the University of North Carolina, where we're trying to address exactly that clinical question. If you have patients with IBD, should you sample daily? Should you sample weekly? How does that compare to what you should do in healthy controls? Unfortunately, the only way we can fit that baseline data is to take very frequent samples, and it's difficult to get people to do that. So, for example, I've been collecting my own samples daily for over six years now, but it's relatively difficult to get people to commit to that kind of level of commitment. So, uh, interested, like, what kind of insights have you learned about yourself from that N equals one? Um, as you note, it's always relatively difficult to draw conclusions from um, from a sample size of one, but it does look like uh, things like travel have a, a fairly large effect. Uh, we've, we've seen that for a number of different locations. One thing we're doing, so, so I should clarify that only uh, only about the first two years of that have been sequenced so far. Most of the rest is in the queue for processing, but it keeps getting bumped due to things like uh, making sure we get the American gut results out and so on. The rest of the time series is uh, currently pending. Uh, let's see, we've done the DNA extraction, so it's, it's currently pending sequencing. And some of the things that we're going to be really interested to follow up on, having a time series that goes that long, is, for example, the seasonality effects that we see in American gut. And we see those even within one individual, because uh, if you can repeat over many years, then you can start to see systematic patterns. I'll tell you about some results from another study, which is the one by uh, Lawrence David and Eric Alm at MIT, where they sampled themselves daily for a year and collected a very large number of auxiliary variables, including, um, so I think they collected over 100 variables every day, including everything they ate, uh, all kinds of things like how much exercise they did, how much they slept, and so on. And they found very few systematic associations. So, for example, about the only thing they saw in diet was citrus, which had a significant effect, whereas many other things that they recorded did not. And then they also saw um, associations with travel and associations with getting GI illnesses, and that was about it. So I think the issue 
is that a lot of the effects, although they may be important, they're probably subtle and cumulative. And so uh, although you're going to get very interesting information from some of these N equals 1 studies like um, like their study and what Larry Smarr uh, here at UCSD has been doing looking at his own uh, gut in the context of IBD and my studies myself. Although there's going to be some interesting stories that come out of them, those are going to be most interesting in terms of the technology development of asking how frequently should you sample to establish a baseline and uh, over what interval do you need to sample to get a decent view of dynamics. So we did a study with Noah Ferrer uh, and Rob Dunn, Greg Caparese, uh, that came out in genome biology towards the end of last year, looking in healthy students at uh, the variation in their gut microbiome over the course of the semester. One thing that was very interesting interesting about that, looking at weekly samples, was that the variability itself seemed to be, uh, seemed to be very important for um, relating, to the, uh, relating to the variables that we had uh, about, uh, so, so the information we had about each subject and each sample. And so it's entirely possible that the variability itself is going to uh, wind up being really important. But of course, it's also a lot more, um, a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive to look at than just looking at a single snapshot. And so the single snapshots are still very valuable, uh, I meant to say, still very valuable, even though uh, you could potentially get more information by looking at the dynamics than you would from a single snapshot. I mean, it's like, um, you know, having a video of, a, of an event can often be very informative, but that doesn't mean that photography has vanished as a, as a discipline, despite the fact that we all carry around uh, little video cameras on our cell phones. Great, great. So in terms of the variability, is it looking that that's a positive or a negative association? Maybe you can't really call it yet, but if, if you've got an idea on which way it would be going, like, for instance, is it potentially that the organi- the microbiomes, when it's healthy, it's able to adapt a lot more to the day-to-day situation, travel and all those things, so it would vary more? Or have you got any insight on that yet or ideas on which way it might go? Yeah, so we don't really have enough information at this point. And as, as you say, it could go either way. Either you might want to see a fair amount of uh, flexibility in, in your microbiome being able to adapt to different circumstances, or you might want to see more resilience. And if it's wandering all over the place, it's more likely to fall off a cliff in terms of the community configuration. Right now, we don't have the data to discriminate between those two. Most of the variability studies have been done at baseline in healthy people. And that doesn't necessarily let you conclude anything about disease. Most of the disease studies have looked at a relatively small number of samples, um, often just a single sample, where you're looking at a case control paradigm where you round up some healthy people, round up some sick people, and you look at the differences at that stage. So uh, really, we're waiting for the right kinds of studies to be done to assess variability in these disease populations. Great, great. Thank you very much. Maybe we could get a couple of guidelines just for people who are already using... American Gut or one of the other services. I'm actually just about to take some antibiotics, for instance. So I've got a kit I intend to use. And then once the course is finished, I intend to use it again. And actually, based on your presentation, I intend to do one 30 days later to see if it will recover. Is that something reasonable as a baseline experiment, just to see what's going on? Uh, Yeah, that's certainly very reasonable. Uh, You might want to look at Dave Roman's paper so it came out in Plus Biology uh, a few years ago, and what he had there was three subjects who were taking ciprofloxacin and uh, from a healthy baseline, and uh, they're measuring how long it took them to come back. What was interesting about that is for the three people, they all responded totally differently, but then it's kind of difficult to figure out what you should say about that because the sample size is only three, and they all responded very differently from one another. But it's certainly reasonable. One thing that's very interesting at the moment is the concept that maybe you should freeze your, uh, freeze your stool before you take the antibiotics so that you could potentially replenish the members of your community. And um, again, I should point out that they're still in its very early stages as a therapy, right? Like this is not medical advice or anything. But the concept that you might want to have that material available uh, in case we figure out how to replenish your microbes from it later, uh, kind of the way people are saving their, you know, their uh, cord blood for, uh, for the stem cells is, is certainly um, very interesting and has a lot of potential. And of course, what you'd be hoping is that, um, is, is that in the relatively near future, and there's a lot of companies and a lot of research groups, uh, a lot of academic research groups interested in this now, the idea that you might not have to actually take the stool uh, itself, but rather uh, isolate just a few of the beneficial microbes from it, encapsulate those into a pill and, um, and follow those, for example. That's shaping up as a very interesting research direction, although at this point it is very much in the lab and not in the clinic. That sounds safer too, also compared to the current fecal transplants. I think one of the concerns of fecal transplants is we don't really know what's in them. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> a concern. You know, because it's just the state of technology today. So while you might make someone better, 
in some extreme cases like C. difficile, obviously that's helpful. But for someone else who's like maybe taking a lot of antibiotics and they've had gut issues, to take a fecal transplant could be seen as a little bit extreme as currently we're not exactly sure what's in it and we could be putting something in there that we'll discover lately, later is not such a good thing. Yes, that's certainly a concern. I'm on the Science Advisory Board for the American Gastroenterological Association's uh, Microbiome Center, and one thing we're actively trying to set up is a long-term registry for uh, for fecal microbiota transplant, essentially so that we can track people who've had it over time and make sure that it remains effective. So for Clostridium difficile-associated disease, it's, it's remarkably effective, like 90 to 95% effective in many different studies. And the last, the last large-scale study comparing it to antibiotics for um, antibiotics uh, for, uh, for, for C. diff actually had to be stopped early because the people who got the FMT were responding so well that it was unethical to continue uh, withholding the FMT from the people who were on the antibiotics. So but how widely that's going to work for other conditions, we don't really know. One thing you can do for antibiotic-associated diarrhea that's very effective is, um, is probiotics. And there's a number of different ones that are now pretty well supported by clinical trials as uh, reducing both the severity and, uh, and the duration of uh, post-antibiotic diarrhea. And so in general, it's not because the organisms themselves are establishing in your gut, but they're creating a favorable environment where they can um, crowd out the weeds like the proteobacteria and things that often come back after antibiotics. And essentially, they're creating more favorable conditions for your own microbes to come back. Great. So to kind of backtrack a bit, like, so in the presentation I saw, you saw the, um, after the antibiotic treatment, um, which, you know, it was a baby with earache, I believe it was, the microbiome pretty much came back to where it was before. Uh-huh, yep. But remember that that's an N equals one study because we just had one kid in there. Yep. So is that a possibility for some, we always talk about antibiotics, like it could be potentially permanent because everyone's pretty concerned. I'm pretty concerned when I'm, I'm going on a course of antibiotics now, like um, what kind of impact down the line is it going to have? But it seems like it, it can depend on the severity because like antibiotics used in many different cases, like they can be used for a couple of days in some cases sometimes. And there's lots of different forms of antibiotics which have different impacts as well and potentially more severe, less severe. It seems that in some cases the microbiome may be able to recover and in, in other cases it's uh, not able to fully recover. And it's quite a variable for the moment, I'm guessing. Or do you have any insights as to the impact of antibiotics and how it varies? Basically, what we know at this point is that um, different antibiotics have uh, very different specificities. So they'll, they'll target different bugs when they're growing um, when, when they're growing in the lab in isolation. We know a lot less about what effects the antibiotics have in more complex settings. And so the same microbe might only be targeted by antibiotics at some stages in its um, growth cycle. And so uh, Pete Tenbaugh, who's uh, now, now at UCSF, but uh, did this work while he was at Harvard, did some very interesting research looking at, uh, looking at effects of the same antibiotic on microbes in different, uh, different communities that had come from different, um, different individual people. And so what he found is that the same mic- uh, so even if you have the same microbe, uh, whether the same antibiotic will target that microbe depends a lot on who it came from. And that's very interesting. I mean, it just, it just suggests that there's a lot of complexity that we don't understand at this point about uh, how a microbe is going to be targeted by a particular antibiotic or will escape that antibiotic depending on what other microbes are around, uh, depending on whether it's expanding its population or contracting it and all kinds of other factors. So I think we're just right at the beginning of understanding uh, what's going on in the complex situation of the human body itself. Yes, absolutely. I think a bit of context to that is if you look at the size of the, you know, the DNA in our genetics versus the microbiome, Right, the microbiome is a lot, a lot bigger, and we don't fully understand DNA yet. So it's basically, is it a much bigger task to understand the microbiome? Yes, it's a tremendously more complex task. So each of us has about 20,000 human genes, but the size of the microbial gene catalogue is somewhere between 2 and 20 million. So by that measure, uh, you could say that we're only about 1% human and uh, about 99% microbial in terms, of the, in terms of the gene count that we're carrying around with us. And so on the one hand, uh, understanding it is tremendously complicated. On the other hand, if you look at other fields where there's tremendous complexity, like, say, nutrition, for example, if you ran, say, a potato through the mass spec, you'd see all these compounds that, you, uh, that you've never seen before and that you don't understand and that, uh, that don't appear in any, uh, any catalogue from any chemical company. On the other hand, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't know a fair amount about what happens if you uh, rely on potatoes as your main food source. 
and additionally, if you look at, uh, if, if you look at, for example, uh, a lot of the chronic diseases from a century ago, so things like um, things, things like rickets, pellagra, uh, beriberi, goiter, uh, and so on, a lot of those chronic diseases have just been completely eliminated by knowing that there's some nutrient that, uh, if you give it to the whole population, like for, like for example, um, iodizing salt or uh, adding um, fortifying uh, milk with vitamin D, fortifying flour with thiamine and so on, uh, you can just uh, eradicate these diseases from the whole population. And so uh, in the same way, it's going to take us a long time to understand the microbiome, but it might not take that long before we understand uh, how replenishing some of these microbes might potentially uh, be really important for addressing some of the chronic diseases that affect us now, including many of the chronic diseases that are linked to the immune system. Great, great. And there are also macro levels. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good example, I think, you just gave on nutrition because we look at the macros, like there's lots of discussions about protein, fat, and, and carbohydrate breakdown in diets. And in the same way, there's there's macro levels of our microbiome, right? There's groups of firmicutes and bacteroidetes and others on a macro level, which I guess you could see patterns with those as, as well and don't necessarily have to dig down to the, the fine levels. Uh, yeah, so, so that's exactly right, although um, although in the same way uh, that micronutrients are really important, some of the rare organisms might be really important. And uh, a useful analogy is uh, something like Yellowstone National Park, where the reintroduction of wolves caused a profound change to the ecosystem. But if you go to the park, and not, not that you'd ever get permission to do this right, but if you went to the park and you ground up, say, a cubic kilometer of, uh, of material and then ran it through DNA sequencing, you wouldn't find a lot of wolf DNA. And, uh, and so the reason why we know they're important is, um, you know, people shot them all and the ecosystem changed. Then they reintroduced them and the ecosystem changed again. So on the one hand, uh, with the technologies that we have right now, we're probably missing the equivalent of the microbial wolves that could be playing really important roles. On the other hand, if you were trying to understand that ecosystem, you'd be crazy to ignore the pine trees and the, um, and the bison and the other really abundant taxa as well, right? So, um, so you can tell a lot looking at what's common as, as well as needing to uh, know about what's rare to fully, understand, uh, to fully understand the system. But I think we'll be able to do a lot with the understanding that we have now. And it's important to remember that that understanding has increased dramatically since uh, just, just in the last decade. So in 2005, it was a major achievement to sequence, um, to sequence the gut microbial communities out of three people. And now we've expanded that first to, first to hundreds of people and then to thousands of people. And we're just getting a, a much broader picture of what kinds of microbes are in there and uh, what their roles are uh, in, in responding to different things. And so the idea that you might be able to look at the microbes in somebody every single day for a year would have been an impossible dream in 2005. But the technology has got so much better that it's been done for a number of people now. And the prospects for uh, developing further technology to open that up to the whole population, I think would totally transform what we can know about the microbial size of ourselves. So uh, being able to push that additional technology development forward, I think is one of the most critical things we can do at this point. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. The, one of the things we kind of skipped over, but I thought might be interesting for the audience is that you spoke about probiotics being useful in connection with the antibiotics treatment and specific types of probiotics. Uh, do you know specifically what those are or could you point us to any papers um, which highlighted those? And in terms of the timing, do you take them while on the antibiotics or is it a post-treatment? The different studies that have been done at the moment uh, haven't really had a lot of consistency in methodology, so uh, it's difficult to make specific recommendations. I mean, it's a fairly complex topic. Um, I cover that in uh, a reasonable amount of detail uh, in, in my book, Follow Your Gut, which is just coming out tomorrow. But essentially, I give, uh, I give a few examples uh, of pointers to studies that have been focused on uh, individual probiotics that are, that are shown to be effective for particular conditions. So one, one thing to remember is that uh, although there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for probiotics and they're very widely available, most of the specific products don't have any particular evidence backing them. And so it can, be, it can be a bit daunting to wade through the literature and try to find the ones that are actually supported by clinical trial data. At the moment, um, at least to my knowledge, there's no really good resource that just, uh, that just summarizes the clinical trial information to tell you what species, what strains, and what products containing those strains have actually been shown to be effective. Although that's something that's a clear opportunity uh, where if someone sets it up, it'll be tremendously valuable for the public, especially given the level of enthusiasm. 
One problem at the moment is that, uh, in, in the US at least, is that the FDA's official stance is that a dietary supplement can't modify a disease endpoint. So uh, as a result, if you find that your product uh, actually does modify a disease endpoint, then it gets re-regulated as a drug, and, and so the manufacturing standards are suddenly much more stringent. And so uh, if you want your yogurt with live and active cultures to continue to be a buck or two a cup rather than being a thousand bucks a cup, which is about what it would cost if you had to uh, manufacture it as a biologic, there's that, issue, there's that issue to consider as well. So that's also a substantial problem for research in this area. Right, so in that case, we're kind of hoping that no one tries to do clinical trials with the probiotics and products. It's kind of like a no-win situ- situation in that respect. Well, well it, it, is, it is a bit of an issue. I mean, it's sort of like the issue with uh, dietary supplements for, um, for athletic performance, right? So uh, any time one's shown to actually be effective, like say, um, like say steroids, for example, it gets banned immediately. So you can draw your own conclusions about the uh, about the effectiveness of the ones that are still on the market. I guess one of the well, the nicer things about that is currently, like when we take antibiotics, it's not really acknowledged that it causes any specific disease. Although people may have gut upsets and, and issues like that. So I guess if these supplements continue to be marketed and perhaps trials are just done on the basis of changing microbiome that wouldn't interfere because it's not a disease endpoint a specific a disease endpoint as i understand it would be a specific classified disease which is currently basically regulated today so as long as they stay out of those disease areas is it not a problem um yeah that's exactly right and that's in part why uh, as as a consumer uh, it's often very frustrating to see what claims are being made because uh, those, those claims are typically very carefully worded and very carefully negotiated. So I know that you're also involved in the Ancestral Microbiome Project. Uh-huh. Um, so could you give us a quick update on how far you've got with that and also what it is for the, the people at home? Uh, sure, absolutely. So the goal of this project is uh, essentially to compare the microbiomes of different people uh, living uh, relatively uh, relatively isolated lifestyles and seeing whether they contain microbes that uh, microbes that we as Westerners have lost, whether through hygiene or antibiotics or uh, diets that perhaps uh, cause us to lose some kind of some of those kinds of microbes that could be beneficial. So there was a paper that uh, just came out two weeks ago, uh, led by Cecil Lewis's group at the University of Oklahoma on the Marxis, um, who are uh, who are a group of hunter gatherers in Peru. There's another one coming out soon that I can't tell you about because it's embargoed. Then the some ongoing work that we're doing with the uh, with the Hadza in Tanzania, in a uh, in, in a project that's led by Jeff Leach. So the Hadza are the last hunter gatherers in East Africa, in the Rift Valley, where of course humanity evolved. So they're the last group that's still uh, exposed to the, the the microbes and to the mammals and to the plants that we would have been uh, that, that we would have co-evolved with uh, during our early evolution. And so uh, they're very exciting to look at from that standpoint. But basically, the idea is to compare uh, different groups and to understand whether there's anything uh, first off to understand whether there's anything that they have in common uh, that we might have lost more recently. And then the second the, the second thing is that uh, trying to understand similarities and differences in different human populations in terms of their microbiomes and how those uh, microbes relate to different uh, different lifestyle features to human genetics and to other factors is going to be incredibly fascinating, uh, both from a science point of view and uh, from the point of view of trying to figure out how our microbiomes should be shaped to optimize health. Yeah, so this is great. I understand that, Jeff, have you spent time with the Hadza as well, or has it just been Jeff that spent the time with actually, you know, in the tribe? I went there for a week last year. Uh, it was just a spectacular experience. Mm. I understand that Jeff, at least just spending time there, his microbiome changed. Um, and he also used a fecal transplant from the Hadza to see a more extreme change. But what I thought was interesting there was just living amongst them and, and spending time with them. He saw some changes in his microbiome also. But I guess you haven't had yours sequenced yet, but potentially over that week you would have seen the same changes. Possibly. We don't have the sequence data for that, although that would certainly be interesting to look at. I should note that uh, that's also true if you, uh, say, start living with a new partner, for example, uh, you'll, you'll converge on their microbiomes relatively rapidly. And one thing of interest at the moment is trying to figure out how much your microbiome records about the people you've lived with and the places that you've lived. Uh, we don't really know the answer to that at this point, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Well, it is just from a health perspective as well, especially as like it's, it's getting quite common to have IBS and, and things like these these days. Okay, kind of makes you question these kind of things. How communicable is it or, or not? You know, I guess there's a lot. 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I don't think it's been done a lot on communicability of IBS. There are some probiotics that have done pretty well in clinical trials for IBS. So. Yeah, so we've got a solution anyway. Yeah, and, and it has been linked to the microbiome uh, by uh, by a number of different studies, including some work we did with Chase Manishan and Francisco, uh, Francisco Guerra in Barcelona. So yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a fascinating area. And uh, the potential that, that some of these conditions could have microbial cures as well as microbial causes is very interesting. Great. Thank you very much, Rob. So what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Well, uh, my TED Talk is a really good starting point. There's a book associated with that talk called Follow Your Gut, which is going on sale tomorrow, actually. Is that on Amazon? Through, through Amazon. And uh, also, uh, I think it's available as an iBook through the Apple Store. That's a good way to find out more. It's a relatively short uh, book. Um, uh, the, the idea is to make it a friendly uh, general introduction rather than going into a lot of technical detail about a whole lot of Latin names that you've never heard about. And also it's got an appendix that gives you a good overview of how you should interpret your American gut results and what things you can and can't learn at this stage, uh, what we hope to be able to find out from it in the future. Great. We'll put links to all this in the show notes. Are there any other good books or presentations for people interested in the microbiome in general, learning more about it? Are there any references that you commonly give out to people, which, which are good resources to check out? Yeah, Marty Blazer's book, uh, so Marty Blazer's book, Missing Microbes, is uh, fantastic and really goes into a lot of detail about uh, how hygiene and antibiotics may have uh, led to the rise of a lot of uh, autoimmune diseases and uh, other chronic diseases that are a problem today. And also it warns specifically about the dangers of uh, overprescription of antibiotics. So I definitely recommend that one. Ed Young's blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science, uh, routinely covers microbiome topics as to Cal Zimmer's columns. Uh, Michael Pollan wrote a very nice piece in the uh, New York Times in 2012 uh, called Some of My Best Friends are Germs, and he's continued to uh, cover the microbiome um, uh, on and off since then. Those pieces are all very good. Jonathan Eisen and uh, Jessica Green both have uh, both have talks that are available through TED. Jonathan's talk gives a very good introduction to uh, what microbes are and what they do out there in the world. And uh, Jessica's work features, um, it's focused more on the built environment and it's talking about the relationships between the microbes on our bodies and in the spaces we inhabit and how we might want to design buildings that are green, not just in terms of the plants, but also in terms of the microbes. So not just energy use, but also uh, also microbial use. So this would be some really good uh, places to start. There's certainly a lot of more technical um, resources out there, but you can probably get to those from uh, the ones that I mentioned, and especially uh, especially the references in Marty's book and in my book are a good place to get started with more technical material. Great. Thank you so much for that list. Very extensive, clearly. So I'm also interested what your personal approach is to body data whether it's for your health, your longevity, or your performance. Do you track any metrics or biomarkers for your own body on a routine basis? We, you know, you've already said that you uh, take stool samples every single day. Is there anything you, else you do? And, and those stool samples, just by the way, are you, for instance, if you go to the toilet twice per day, do you take two stool samples or are you taking one per day? Initially, I was taking one per day, and I'm trying to uh, capture all of them to the extent possible. So in terms, um, in, in terms of uh, auxiliary data, I must admit that I'm not nearly as uh, diligent as um, some other people who are interested in this sort of thing have been at tracking every single thing they're doing every day. In part, that's, uh, that, that's informed by some of the studies where people have uh, tracked a tremendous number of measures and not seen a lot. So, uh, so it's been relatively difficult to uh, justify that level of additional time commitment. Mostly what I'm tracking are things like, um, so periodically I do food, uh, food item inventories. Uh, tracking things like travel is important. I would track medications, except, uh, except uh, I essentially haven't had any last, uh, during, during that interval. But it's the sort of thing that I would uh, keep track of if it became relevant, that kind of thing. Great, great. I'm guessing that most of these things are something you, you're doing in the realm of science because you're exploring a specific subject. Do you think you would control for any of these if you weren't involved in the science itself out of a personal interest? How would you kind of modify that if you weren't currently studying U as an N equals one experiment to further the science? On a personal level, you know, what kind of things do you think you would be doing? All kinds of things are interesting. It's just a matter of uh, how much time you're willing to put into it. So, um, so it'd be very interesting to do, uh, well, how much time and how much money. 
So, you know, it would be very interesting to do blood and urine metabolites frequently, perhaps even daily. It would be very interesting to get finer grained resolution on fitness, um, like, uh, like with an activity tracker, that kind of thing. Given what we're now starting to find out about uh, brain microbe links, it might, it might be really interesting to, uh, to, for example, track EEG readings over time and relate those to microbial data. You could even imagine doing like an MRI of yourself every day to see whether, uh, to see whether that complex multivariate space uh, tracked with the complex multivariate space defined by your microbiome. Although that's definitely a level of effort and expense that it's just not worth it at this point, right? But 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 I think this is one of these things where the more data you have, uh, the more potential you have to find out something really interesting that you wouldn't have expected. Great, thank you so much. And the last question: What would be your number one recommendation to someone who's trying to use data in their life to embed decisions about their health, their performance, or their longevity? Something about their body. What would be your number one recommendation on how to use data effectively? There's a lot of different ways that you could answer that question, but I guess um, I, I guess my number one recommendation would be that lots in the literature like uh, randomized controlled trials about what works and what doesn't are probably a, those are a really good guide um, as to what you should do initially. Now, um, you might want to modify that based on observations of your own body because anything that's in the literature uh, are going to be based on population averages. And one thing we know about people is that there's tremendous amounts of variability. So uh, what works on average in a clinical trial is not necessarily going to be what works for you individually. So, um, so, so start, start with what's solid evidence from clinical trials, especially uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials, uh, and then modify that based on your own observations about your own health where those are meticulously recorded and you have them over uh, a long enough period of time that, uh, that, that you have reproducible observations, not just one-off anecdotes. Thank you. They offer some, some great insights into randomized control studies and, and the average is also, which comes up sometimes on, on this show, you know, averages don't necessarily mean you. So it's, thank you for reinforcing that point. Rob, thank you also for making time available today. Really enjoyed the show. You know, you've obviously got a very, very deep background in this stuff and we've covered a lot of materials. Looking forward to read your book also. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Damien, and thanks again for your interest in this. And uh, I think this is only going to get more exciting as we find out more and more about the microbiome. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.